Turn with me to Genesis 31. Genesis 31 will be there in just a few minutes. In our first introductory message to the Pentateuch, I liken this journey that we're taking together in this 60-message series to getting a train going. It takes time to build up some steam, and then we're going to go flying through the mountains and valleys. And we've looked generally at the entire Pentateuch. We examined the theological center the central directive, we called it, of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, concerning the dominion of mankind on earth as God's royal ambassadors. As part of that second message, we saw that Israel is the major focus of the Pentateuch because Israel is the means by which that kingdom will be brought to all nations, redemption from sin to all the nations. We spent the last two messages looking at the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law, to the Old Testament narrative, the story of the Old Testament, and how we can understand that today. And as we build up speed now in our train, my goal for tonight really is for us to look out the windows of the train and see the countryside from the standpoint of the Israelites, what they were seeing and what they would uh, understand as their normal world, the territory in which they were living And because of this, out of all five of these introductory messages, this final one is by far the most challenging from a preaching standpoint. And I'll tell you why. I think it's necessary, but it's challenging because tonight is pure history. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't excite me. So the problem is, is that I'm not called to give you history lessons. I'm called to preach the word so that your lives are conformed to the perfection of the Son of God, that you're growing in holiness and humility and Christ-likeness. But I wanted to take this challenge on because I think that what we're doing tonight really speaks to the problem and the, the challenge that Christians have with the Old Testament, with the Pentateuch in particular, and that is relating to the Old Testament, relating to the Pentateuch. How does this fit my life. Not that we're having a a self-focused view of the Bible, but we do want to read Scripture with a sense of how we can apply it. And I think that very often, as we've said before, either we say, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with me, or we moralize the text to say that uh, there's this lesson here that we take from it without really any paying attention to the context. So tonight, I want to use important historical information to kind of bridge that gap for us, to put some final nails in this argument here that the Pentateuch is as relevant to us today in 2019 as it was in 1406 BC when it was finally written down. And I think if you'll stay with me and stay focused this evening, what you'll actually find is that out of all five messages we've done so far, this is actually the most applicable to your life. But you're going to have to hang around for a few minutes to to see that. And I put this last by design for that very reason. So here's my basic game plan. To better understand how the Pentateuch applies to my life, I have to understand the world of the Israelites. You have to understand the world of the Israelites. Most of what we understand is just some vague pictures we have in our mind. Maybe a Sunday school lesson or two that you had where you, you know, colored a picture of a spear and a knife or something. And that's what you, that's what you think that they're kind of wandering around in the wilderness and wondering, well, why, why didn't they just get a map and find their way out? And so we have these vague pictures. But what we want to build here is what they were up against as God's chosen people. And so what I want to show you tonight are the five challenges that the Israelites faced. Five challenges that they faced. And we're going to get to those in in just a moment. But those challenges all have one common factor, which really greatly impacted the world of the ancient Near East, the ancient Israelites. And I want to show you how this common factor, how pervasive it is, and how it's revealed in the Pentateuch. And since I'm not teaching from one specific text tonight, I thought we would take a couple of minutes and do a Bible drill exercise on steroids. We're going to get your fingers ready here. I I could give you some Bible statistics, and I could say that this happens this many times, and this happens this many times, but I don't think that would have the impact that this is going to have. So we're going to spend a few minutes, and we're going to experience something together. Are you ready? I'll give you the statistics when we're done. But get, get your fingers ready. I'm going to go fast. Look with me at Genesis 31, 19. 31, 19. And you will understand what I'm talking about when we're done. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. 
Look at Genesis 31, verse 30. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Look at verse 32. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household gods. Verse 35. And she said to her father, Let my Lord not be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Turn with me to Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. Turn with me now to Exodus, Exodus 12. We'll make our way through the Pentateuch here. Exodus 12, verse 12. Exodus 12, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Chapter 15, verse 11, in the midst of the song of Moses, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Look with me at Exodus chapter 18, verse 11. Exodus chapter 18, verse 11. Somebody listening to this recording is going to hear all the Bible pages turning, and that is a blessing. Chapter 18, verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Exodus chapter 22, verse 20. Exodus chapter 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. Verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Verse 24 of the same chapter. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them. Verse 32 of the same chapter. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Verse 33 of the same chapter. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Verse 4, and he fashioned the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel. Verse 23, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. Verse 31 so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Verse 14. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Verse 16. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Verse 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Skip a few pages over to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now go to the book of Numbers. Numbers 25. All the way near the end. Numbers 25, verse 2. Numbers 25, verse 2. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Turn to chapter 33 of Numbers. Numbers 33, verse 4. Numbers 33, verse 4. 
while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Go over now to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3. Verse 24, right near the end of the chapter. Verse 24, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him? Verse 28 of chapter 4. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Look at verse 33 of the same chapter. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Deuteronomy 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, verse 14. Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Verse 16 of the same chapter. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you. Same chapter, verse 25. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19, If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, you're doing very well. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16, Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Same chapter, verse 28. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Verse 3, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Deuteronomy 12 still, verse 30. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? Deuteronomy 13, verse 2. And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 and 7. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Verse 13 of the same chapter, that certain will, worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods. Deuteronomy 17, verse 3. And has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. We're nearing the end of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Deuteronomy 20, verse 18. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods and so you sin against the Lord your God. 
Skip over to Deuteronomy 28, verse 14. Deuteronomy 28, verse 14. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That's a prophecy. Same chapter, verse 64, right near the end. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Same chapter, verse 26. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 17 But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 31, rather, verse 16. 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you were about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land. Same chapter, verse 18. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Same chapter, verse 20, for when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers to give to their fathers and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Deuteronomy 32, verse 12, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Verse 16, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. Verse 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they have never known, to new gods that had come recently. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is no god. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Same chapter, verse 37. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Same chapter, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. Verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Can you tell what the issue is with the Israelites? Now listen, this is the last reference. We just did 80 of them. The last reference to the gods in Deuteronomy, in the Pentateuch, and the last reference is a command to the heavens, to the sun, the moon, all the false gods that people worship to bow down to the one true living God. That tells us a huge Part of what the Israelites were facing. This was the pervasive problem facing God's people. Now let me give you five challenges facing the Israelites, the view from the train of their world, and the first challenge is going to be obvious to you. Their first challenge is living among the world of idolatry. Living among the world of idolatry. Everyone believed the gods were real. There was no such thing as an atheist of any flavor in the ancient Near East. Everyone believed in the gods. In every ancient Near Eastern culture, the people believed in and they worshipped a a pantheon of gods. The Egyptian deities, there were about 40 major ones and you've probably heard of some of them, Ra and Isis and so forth, but there were about 2,000 Egyptian deities in all that are named. Mesopotamia had names for about 3,000 gods. A lot of nations sort of had a champion deity, kind of their their top guy, the hometown favorite that they believed to be superior to the other gods, but they believed in all the other deities as well. The gods of the ancient Near East weren't thought of as perfect. They were subject to fighting among themselves. According to mythology, they possessed envy, jealousy, malice. They were like really, really spoiled teenagers, basically is what they were like. No single god was considered all-powerful. Now, there was argument and discussion over which one was most powerful, but nobody thought there was such thing as an all-powerful God. 
the main feature that these gods had in common was that they all had the power to significantly wreck your life. That's what they had in common. They could ruin your crops. They could send hail. They could have you be attacked by a neighboring nation. And so the strategy was to try to appease the gods before they did something to you. That There was no love. There was no affection. It was just, we got to keep them happy. And so if you believed in a certain number of gods, maybe you had your, your personal favorite. You did a lot for the personal favorite, but you also tried to cover all your bases with every god that you knew about. Temples were built to the gods. Sacrifices were made. In the pagan mind, a sacrifice was literally feeding the gods. It was giving them sustenance and food. There were countless different rituals employed to try to appease the gods. These could even involve physical pain, personal mutilation, or ritual acts of immorality. These gods weren't character-driven. They weren't thought to be moral. They weren't thought to be ethical. They were just thought to be really powerful and bigger than us. That, That was the thought. But the Pentateuch argues the case for Yahweh as the one true living God who is holy in character, who truly is all-powerful. Deuteronomy 4, 39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God great, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the result of this was that Moses bowed his head to the earth and worshipped him. It's, it's important to grasp this. That this is not something that we get because you were brought up as a monotheist. You were brought up to believe in one God. The Israelites weren't. It's important to understand that the Israelites were convinced that Yahweh was a mighty and powerful God, but they weren't unilaterally convinced that he was the only one. That was going to take time. One scholar rightly assessed to the Israelites, Yahweh was real, but he was unlike the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world. And if you you don't believe me, all you have to do is think about the golden calf. I mean, just literally weeks after exiting Egypt, they decided to start making idols again. That's what they were used to. But unlike the gods of the ancient Near East, ritual acts didn't force God to do anything. The prescribed ritual acts that he gives in the law aren't to force him to do something. It's to show that the people are wholly dependent on him. They're not appeasing an adolescent-like God. They were sacrificing for the payment of sins against his holy character. And so it's completely different. And so the Lord is is beginning to shape them and teach them that there's one true living God. So the first challenge was that they were living quite literally in a world where they were surrounded by idolatry, completely surrounded. Here's a second challenge they had. We'll call it embracing the unity of life. Embracing the unity of life. The ancient Near Eastern peoples didn't make a distinction between sacred and secular. There was no such thing as secular life and religious life. The gods either provided for you or they didn't. Fortune, if you were fortunate in life, you were seen as being approved of by the gods. And if you had all kinds of misfortune, the gods were really mad at you. That was the judgment of the gods. Now, what's interesting is that the Old Testament, generally speaking, agrees with this. Agrees with this. It's simply that the pagan peoples were focused on gods that didn't exist. But for the Israelite, the faithful Israelite, all of life was to be lived in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of God. Your work, your community, your marriage, your children, certainly your money was all included in how you lived before God. The law of God in the Pentateuch, it covers every aspect of life. There's nothing that's not covered. The goal was to live a life which was pleasing to the Lord, not to use the law to earn spiritual salvation, but you're living out the law as an act of loving obedience to Yahweh. So the issue was not so much which parts of life are worship, but to whom is that worship due in every area of life? And so the Lord, in a very real sense, was in competition 
with literally thousands of false gods. And so he set apart, set out to show himself as being different. So their second challenge was embracing the unity of life. Third challenge that they had, we'll call preserving the group identity. Preserving the group identity. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, and I want to show you a, a, a passage you're probably familiar with. In the ancient Near East, the individual was not nearly as important as the group. You were loyal to your family, you were loyal to your clan, you were loyal to your tribe, and then you were loyal to your nation. It's important to remember that the texts of the Old Testament are addressed to people who mainly thought in those terms of group identity. And one example I want to show you is what's called the law of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25. It strikes us today as bizarre, as a little bit odd, and we even question it at times. Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. What? But even before the law of God was given, this was a clear mandate from God, even to the family of of Jacob. In fact, there's a member of the family of Jacob who refused to perform this duty for his dead brother, and God struck him dead for refusing to do this. It strikes us as very peculiar because for us, the decision to marry is very personal, it is very individualistic, and it's really pretty much all about me and what I want and what's going to be best for me. But that law makes perfect sense to a people that had as their very top priority to to preserve their identity, to preserve their tribal integrity, to preserve property ownership. What's one of the major parts of the Old Testament? It's the land promises. And so if you owned property in your family, that was a big, big deal. This was much more important than individual freedom to choose a spouse. It didn't mean that individual responsibility was never important. Obviously, the law of God makes that clear. But the family ties were deep. The integrity of Israel as a nation was important to God. And even the tribal integrity of the individual tribes within Israel was important. I won't have you turn here, but if you looked at Numbers 26, you'll see that God even organized Israel all the way down to family affiliation. He didn't just say, you're all Israel. He said there are 12 tribes. Within that, those tribes, there are clans. Within those tribes, clans, there are families. And he identified them by name. Group identity and the good of the group was extremely important. The the Western-style individualistic thinking that we're accustomed to, that was totally foreign to them. For example, when Israel was defeated at Ai, it's probably more properly pronounced I, it turned out that it was because Achan had violated God's command to not take spoil, to not take gold and silver from Jericho in that particular battle, and Joshua chapter 7 records Achan being revealed by the Lord as the guilty party. He humbled himself. He confessed his sin in great detail. He outlined what he took exactly and exactly where he hid it. And even though Achan confessed, he was executed for his direct disobedience against God. But Achan wasn't the only one executed. His sons and his daughters were executed as well. And all of his worldly possessions were burned. You know what God did? He erased Achan's name from the planet. That his name would never be perpetuated. Why? Because Achan had tainted the family. The family had tainted all of Israel with sin. And that had cost the lives of 36 Israelite soldiers at the Battle of Ai. So 
group identity, preserving the group identity, that was their challenge, and it was extremely important, and the Lord held them to it time and time again. There was a fourth challenge that they faced, and that was, we'll call it, grasping the sovereign independence of God. Grasping the sovereign independence of God. The ancient Near Easterner believed in what what is called a closed system of three realms. And the easiest way to picture this is just simply picture a circle, and inside this circle are three realms, three areas of reality. You had humanity, you had nature, and you had the gods. Humanity, nature, and the gods. And they're all inside this closed system. And they're, they're connected, and they're, they're uh, interrelated. They exist together in this unbroken circle. The gods were powerful, but they were part of the system and they could be managed. If the gods were mad at you, they would work with nature to smite you. But if you could appease the gods, they would work with nature to bless you. And so you had this relationship in this closed system. But the Pentateuch is totally different. Yahweh is transcendent. He's not part of the system. He's not part of the the time and space and matter continuum. He created time and space and matter The ancient Near Eastern gods could be manipulated. They could even be cast under spells at times. But Yahweh couldn't be handled. He couldn't be affected. He couldn't be manipulated. He is outside the system, even though he's acting energetically upon the system in sovereign power and control. You have to understand that 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 was a radical change to all of the way uh, ancient Near Easterners viewed the world, to their Eastern conception of reality. That's why so much of the law points to the supremacy and to what we might call the otherness of God, that he is completely different. He's incomparable to the gods. He's in a unique category. Dozens of times, God gives a law, and his reason for the law, he says, you shall not do this, I am Yahweh. And he says that over and over again, meaning I'm different. I'm outside the system. I'm not a part of it. I am transcendent. Unlike the pagan gods, Yahweh didn't need to be fed. He didn't need to be provided for. We saw this recently in Psalm 50 when God condemned Israel for thinking they could treat him like false gods. And and in Psalm 50, basically, God says, why do you think I'm hungry? I already own all the cows. I already own everything. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I would just go get something. And he's basically saying, I'm not anything like the other gods. So they had to grasp that he was sovereign, that he was independent. And there was one more challenge that they had. And this was just a whole new way of thinking for them. Their final challenge we would call avoiding a man-centered view of God. Avoiding a man-centered view of God. Critics have often pointed out that the law of God in the Pentateuch is very similar to other ancient Near Eastern law codes. And this is true. All of the law codes of the ancient Near East provided for the well-being of society. And since human societies are extremely similar, you would expect these laws to be similar as well. And so critics will say, well, the law of God was just copied from those other laws. But actually, there's some fundamental differences to them. And I want to give you a couple of those. And then one major overwhelming difference. Let me give you some examples of the fundamental differences. The Code of Hammurabi, named for King Hammurabi, was written in the 18th century B.C., several several centuries before the Mosaic Law. But like the other ancient Near Eastern law codes, this code distinguished different classes of people when handing out punishments. This was fairly common. Basically, the poorer you were and the lower class you were, um, as, as a victim of a crime, the less punishment an offender received. In other words, if you beat up a rich man, you could lose your life for it. If you beat up a homeless guy, people would kind of say, well, that's too bad, isn't it? And the laws reflected this. But the biblical law never does that. It never imposes a different punishment based on the social status of the victims, even if the victim was a foreigner or a slave. Why? Because God created all mankind in his image. There was no one that was less than the other. We even have it in our culture here that all men are created what? Equal. What's the key word? Created. And so the law of God is completely unique in this. If you're a king and something bad happens to you, 
the punishment is X, Y, and Z. And if you are the poorest of the poor or a slave or a foreigner and the same thing happens to you, the punishment is the same for the offender. Here's another major difference that we could take from what they're called the Middle Assyrian laws. The Middle Assyrian laws originated during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser. Don't try to spell that. You can look it up on Google. He reigned in the 12th and 11th centuries B.C. But the Middle Assyrian laws allowed for personal retribution. It allowed for basically government-sanctioned vengeance. And it could include personally killing the offender in the case of a serious crime like adultery. But it also gave a lot of latitude. For example, in the middle of Syrian laws, if you caught your wife with another man, you could, A, kill her and the other guy on the spot with no, retrib- no, no punishment for you whatsoever, or you could just decide to maim your wife and the lover, or you could just decide, you know, I kind of had it coming, I'm not even going to worry about it. In other words, there, it was up to the victim to decide what to do about the crime. And yes, people would say, well, the law of Moses has the famous eye for an eye principle from Exodus 21, but that wasn't personal vengeance. That was God-sanctioned justice in proportion to the crime. If the crime was small, then the punishment was small. If the crime was great, the punishment was great. As a matter of fact, God commanded the establishment of cities of refuge so that if someone was tempted to take personal vengeance, then there was a legal place to go and be safe until that, the, the hothead had kind of cooled off. But here's the huge difference between the law of God and all the other ancient Near East law codes. The other law codes were not grounded in the morality or the character of their gods. Actions weren't characterized as right or wrong. They were just pleasing or displeasing to certain gods. The law codes weren't moral. They weren't ethical. They were just an expression of what it takes to keep a society running successfully. The ancient Near Eastern cultures observed that if everybody's committing murder, society can't run. So they outlawed murder. So it was just very pragmatic. In their belief systems, the gods themselves didn't keep these laws. The gods themselves were, were unethical and immoral. And so because of this, there was room to commute sentences or just make a, a human decision to ignore a crime. Now, this is, I, I'm saying all this to get to one point. The reason that human beings could decide to either ignore a crime or punish a crime or somewhere in between was because the ancient Near East law code envisioned that the offended party was a human being. And this is important to understand. So if the offended party is a human being, then the human being can decide whether or not to to extend grace and mercy or to extend punishment. The man whose wife committed adultery could maim her, he could kill her, or he could just forget about it. But the law of God, the law did not consider human beings the offended party. God was the offended party because the law is based in his character and in his holiness. Therefore, only God could conceivably alter a punishment and only God, you ready for this, can forgive sin. Because it wasn't just an ethical system, it was, a, it was a, a, an attack against his character. Now, basically, the gods of the ancient Near East supposedly existed to be manipulated into just not destroying my life through floods or drought, and they were there to give me success and health and wealth. But Yahweh exists for his own glory, and his holy standard is a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection that he would wish to see in the behavior of his people. So the theology of Israel was to be God-focused, while the ancient Near Eastern peoples around them attempted to just use their gods for selfish, man-centered purposes. Quite honestly, the prosperity gospel of today resembles greatly the pagan worship practices of the ancient Near East. It's almost identical. Now, we've walked through this, and hopefully I've painted you a picture of the challenges that Israel faced as God's holy and unique and different and set-apart nation living among a world of idolatry, embracing the unity of life, preserving the group identity, grasping the sovereign independence of God, and avoiding a man-centered view of God. Now, one of the things I love about Grace Bible Church is you are a people of the Word, and already you're probably seeing how amazingly relevant and applicable 
these five challenges are right now in the time of the church of Jesus Christ because the same five challenges that God has laid out for Israel and given them the solution to are exactly the same five that we have in the church in 2019. Let me walk through them with you. Living among the world of idolatry. Everyone in the ancient Near East believed in the gods. They believed they were real. One of the features of idol worship was a lack of a uniform and objective standard which led to superstitious behavior. I'll give you an example. If in the time of your sacrifice to the local superhero god, your favorite god, and you, you really are, you've just planted your, your seeds for the year and you're thinking, I really need a good crop this year, so I'm going to go sacrifice to this God and maybe he'll give me a good crop. And at the last minute, you, you get inspired and you pull out your knife and you just slash your arms a few times and bleed all over the place. Maybe that'll get the God's attention. And that year you have a huge harvest. Guess what you're doing next year at sacrifice time? Boy, you know, I cut my arm three or four times. I'm going to slash my leg off this time and maybe that will give me a really good crop. And on the other side, if you didn't sacrifice at all and you forgot to go that year, you thought, oh, it won't be that bad. And, and a hailstorm comes and decimates just your farm and everything else is left. You go, boy, next year I'm going to do more. I'm going to make sure and make that sacrifice. And if you did a huge sacrifice and then had a terrible year, now you're really pulling your hair out. You're going, I, bet, I better find something different to sacrifice. And you say, well, nobody would do that today. Professional athletes do that all the time today. Wearing their lucky socks or not wearing their uniform or not washing their uniform hat. It's a superstition based on the human inclination to worship idols. Now, what does that have to do with us in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, idol worshipers used experience to determine truth. And so it can be manifested in using experience to make a determination of truth. And let's use our building campaign as an example. I've given you some examples in which a building campaign is very good for a church. We did that this morning, and this is encouraging, but it doesn't in and of itself prove that a building campaign is right. It's just an encouraging illustration. At our churchwide uh, Q&A a number of weeks ago, I gave some times which, when a building campaign is a bad idea. And churches in the past have mismanaged that opportunity to their detriment. But that doesn't in and of itself prove that a building campaign is wrong because it went badly. Instead, we have one source of truth. We have the revealed word of God. We have clear commands to give financially. We have clear commands to support the direction of godly leadership in the church and not to push back against that. We have a clear precedent in Scripture, clear precedent in Scripture that God's people are to have sacred space dedicated to worship and that that space is to be owned. We have a clear precedent for even how leaders are to strongly encourage giving in 2 Corinthians 9. We have a clear precedent for generous churches. We have a clear direction for the purpose of the church and, and, and building campaigns should help elevate that purpose from Colossians 1.28. But all of that is from an objective source of information. So we don't want experience alone to determine our truth. Ultimately, that's idolatry. But of course, we're surrounded by idols of the flesh. I told you about the, the 2,000 Egyptian gods and the 3,000 Mesopotamian gods. That didn't even include the Babylonian gods and, and all of the Canaanite gods. And you would say, boy, I'm, I'm glad we don't live in that era. I think it's worse now. At least those were gods that you could see. And you could go to a wooden idol and you could take an axe and say, I don't believe you, and split its head right down the middle and we're done. And you have a fire and we're good. But today there are thousands of gods competing for our worship that we can't see. Time, recreation, money, career, personal achievement, personal looks, physical fitness, none of those things are inherently bad until we turn them into gods. It's like the book of Isaiah makes a joke, essentially, that you go and you cut down a tree and you have this big log, you cut it in half, with half of it you make firewood and make your dinner, the other half you make a god and bow down and worship it. That makes no sense. Idols of the heart are the nemesis of every Christian, and they sneak up on you. In 1666, Puritan pastor Thomas Watson published his outstanding book, The Godly Man's Picture, and here's what he says about idolatry of the heart. 
He says, consider how vain and contemptible other things are about which persons void of godliness busy themselves. Men are taken up with the things of this life and what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? Ecclesiastes 5.16. Can the wind fill? What is gold but dust? Amos 2.7. Which will sooner choke than satisfy. Pull off the mask of the most beautiful thing under the sun and look what is inside. There is care and vexation, and the greatest care is still to come, and that is to give account to God. The things of the world are just like a bubble in the water or a meteor in the air, but godliness has real worth in it. Have you ever read First John? First John is this beautiful book to believers saying that if you're in Christ, you love the church. If you're in Christ, you love the church. If you're in Christ, you love the church. And then he he ends, it's like this really horrible ending from a, from a human standpoint. He doesn't say, and may the Lord's blessing be upon you and, and God be with you. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Oh, that's a surprise ending. But his concern is idolatry of the heart. What is an idol? Very simply, anything you're willing to sin to have and keep or anything you're willing to sin to avoid is an idol. These can be things. It could be manipulating relationships to please only you. It can be uh, deciding that you, you must have your marriage or your children or your other relationships exactly the way you want it. It can be an idol. So this is vital because we are living among a world of idolatry. It's everywhere. We are surrounded. And in my counseling experience, when you're worshiping something other than the Lord, it happens so subtly that it can overtake you. And, and I've seen it more times than I care to remember. When I may suggest, do you think this particular area of your life could be an idol of the heart? And I've seen the fangs and the face of anger come out because he just poked it, poked the idol. How about embracing the unity of life? Embracing the unity of life. All of life was to be lived out in the presence of Yahweh. The law of God and the Pentateuch covers every aspect of life, just as the New Testament teachings to the church cover all aspects of life. Well, the New Testament Christian is also to embrace the unity of life. There is no sacred and secular. All of life is sacred to the Lord. You're called to be set apart. You can't compartmentalize your life into pieces, that there's my home life, my work life, my family life, my spiritual life. You, you can't compartmentalize. And of course, this is the spirit of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That means your whole life, everything that you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship And how do you do that? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I don't know about you, but I'm scared to have a Sunday not in church because I need to hear the word of God. I need to be with God's people. I need to sing the truths of God because the world is encroaching. And so our lives need to be a unified whole. How about preserving the group identity? Preserving the group identity, we live in a culture that's so individualistic. And so when we talk about the corporate entity known as the church, we're still prone to try to marry the concepts of what's best for me and what's best for the church. And we try to find that compromise. We do have a group identity. And like Israel, we're called to preserve it. We're told in Ephesians 4, 3, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're told in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The very specific to church functioning, we're told in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It, it just says, have unity of mind. It's a decision you make. Our church is going in this direction. Let's just go together. Have unity of mind. He says, have a humble mind, meaning what I think isn't the most important thing. We have a group identity. We're told concerning church leadership, something that I honestly think so very few believers actually take seriously when the rubber meets the road. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Why is this important? Because in keeping that command, unity is preserved and the group identity is kept intact. I think one of the things that just shames the name of Christ more than anything is is the church split over stupid stuff. And the world sees, but those guys can't even get along with each other. Why do they think they have any answers for me? Jesus himself identified churches as groups, as a group identity, as a group entity. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus gave his assessment in Revelation 2, verse 13, quote, that you hold fast my name, and this is good. They are as a church faithful to the name of Christ in the midst of a difficult place. But then he says, I have some things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. This is a false gospel teaching. And they had some who held to another false teaching, that of the Nicolaitans. And what's his call to action? This is important or we'll miss this detail. He says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. Now, wait a minute. Who is he calling to repent? The pronouns here tell us. Is he calling to just the individuals to repent? No. He's speaking to the individuals, but he's speaking to, he's, I'm sorry, he's not speaking to the individuals. He's speaking to the church about the individuals, and he tells the church, repent. Now, in our American culture, we would say, well, hey, I'm not teaching about Balaam, and I'm not Nicolaitan. Jesus said, do you go here? You're part of the problem. You didn't deal with it. This is an uphill climb in our culture especially in our society, which is steeped in individualism. You know, so many people sign the membership covenant and they say we, we agree and we, we uh, promise before the Lord to submit to the godly leadership of the elders, but the moment an elder tells them to do something that they don't agree with, that goes out the window. I've seen that more times than I count. So when I am with someone when they sign the membership covenant, sometimes I like to say, hold on, take a breath. Do you really mean this? Because we are a group. The commercial consumer attitude toward the church says that it's not my Christian family. It is a service offered to me. And if I find another service I like a little bit more, I'm going to switch. Just like I go from AT&T to Verizon. And so church hopping becomes a way of life. And by the way, for some pastors, aggressive sheep stealing becomes a way of life. When somebody comes here from a like-minded church... First thing I do is I get on the phone or email with the pastor of a like-minded church and say, what are they doing here? And you want me to send them back. One writer for Crossway Publishing wrote an insightful article called Seven Bad Reasons to Leave a Church. Five of them are particularly relevant. Other churchgoers annoy you. Okay, can you find a church where that's not going to happen? He points out that the church is made up of people of different backgrounds, cultures, personalities, age brackets, because that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. But our consumerism instinct is to try to find people just like us, our age, our background, our personality, our skin color. Second reason, he says, is that your cause is not sufficiently championed, meaning that your idea of the century to launch a particular ministry or program doesn't go anywhere, or the opposite of that, that something's happening that you don't agree with. You don't necessarily have a biblical reason. You just don't like it. And so you leave. The third reason, bad reason, worship isn't your preferred style. The preacher goes too long. He doesn't go long enough. The music isn't, isn't traditional enough. It isn't non-traditional enough. And when taste and preference instead of content become your motivating factor, now consumerism is driving your decision, and it's, it's ridiculous. It's not the group identity. The fourth reason, he says, there's a more trendy church nearby. The, the pastor is cool. I've never been accused of being cool. I'm sorry, that's just not going to happen. The music is entertaining. But you know what the author says? That the, 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 the trendy church of today is the boring church of tomorrow because you get used to needing to be stimulated all the time. And when it doesn't work anymore, you have to move on. It's the new flavor. And the last reason he gives is your heart just isn't in it anymore. The author points out that this is a consumer mentality which we don't apply to our other relationships. I mean, wives, have you ever, don't answer this, have you ever looked at your husband and just said, my heart isn't in this at this moment? You don't just up and leave. Every relationship has ups and downs. 
seasons in which the emotion is not as strong as other times. I have times when I'm super excited to get into the pulpit. There are other times when I need to do my duty. And it just has to be that way. The happiest and most contented church members are the ones who think and behave for the good of the group. That's a happy church member. How about grasping the sovereign independence of God? The ancient Near Easterner believed in that closed system, humanity, nature, and the gods. But we saw that the Pentateuch and the Pentateuch Yahweh is transcendent. He's not part of the system. He is outside the system. He can't be manipulated. The sovereign independence of God sometimes is called by theologians the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, says that he's perfectly self-sufficient. He's the source of life for everything else. He has life in and of himself. He existed before all things. He depends on nothing. He's the source of all things. Other scriptures affirm that he does as he wills. He does everything for his own sake. He doesn't need anything. He's completely independent in his mind, in his will, in his counsel, in his love, in his power. He's totally independent. This is a high view of God which honors his holiness, his otherness, his uniqueness. And oh, this keeps us in check in so many ways. It keeps us from taking credit for any part of our salvation. He's independent. It keeps us from praying deals with God, that if I do such and such, then God, will you do this for me? Instead, it inspires us to pray according to his will, and our prayers are answered because we prayed what he wanted, not what we wanted. It keeps us from sinfully questioning God in the midst of tragedy and pain because if everything depends on God, if God is sovereignly independent outside of time and space and matter, then even the worst tragedy can be brought to resolution, listen, given enough time. It may not happen this year. It may not happen in your lifetime, but everything will come to resolution. And we believe this from Romans 8.28. But to treat God as a deity that you can manipulate for salvation, manipulate for prosperity, then God has become no higher than Baal or Asherah or Ra or Isis or any of the other pagan gods. Do we have the challenge of avoiding a man-centered view of God? Our last one. Remember, the other law codes weren't grounded in the moral character of their gods. They didn't have moral character. Actions weren't right or wrong. They were just pleasing or displeasing. They were convenient or inconvenient. But but the law of God says that based on the law, God is the offended party. And because of this, God could conceivably alter the punishment of an offender. Only he can forgive sin. And this is so important for us. Because true biblical repentance, this isn't about how you hurt other people. It's not about how you hurt yourself. Repentance and salvation isn't, I need to get my life together. That's just a byproduct. That's just a byproduct. Salvation from sin is necessary because God is the only truly offended party. After King David committed adultery and murder in his confession, he wrote to God in Psalm 51, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God does not exist to make your life better. He exists for his own glory, for his own fame, for his own worth, for his own magnificence. And now, in following after God, your life does get better, but primarily by virtue of the fact that you've been given eternal life. So, my hope tonight is that I've convinced you that the Pentateuch is as relevant as a minute ago. It is absolutely relevant because we're living among a world of idolatry. We need to embrace the unity of life. We need to preserve the group identity. We need to grasp the sovereign independence of God. And we need to avoid a man-centered view of God. Well, I hope that our five introductory messages have got you ready. And if you haven't started reading the Pentateuch, now's the time to get going. Next week, we're going to familiarize ourselves with Genesis. Our train is getting up to speed and we're about to start hitting it pretty quick. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is completely consistent with itself. And anyone who would say otherwise hasn't read it. Anyone who would say that the Bible is just a a book of nonsense, of stories put together in a nonchalant, random fashion, has not seen the glory of the scriptures. And so, Lord, as we've spent some time getting this train moving here, 
It's my prayer for each person here that as we walk through chapter by chapter, the Torah, the law, the first words that you gave to humanity, that we would be so blessed and so encouraged as we see so many ways to be more like Christ as a result of learning your law and learning the narratives and learning the, the overall story and and learning that as 80 places in the Pentateuch, the Israelites are warned against false gods, that we see that even in First John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And so, Lord, I pray not just that we would learn facts about the Bible, but I pray that we would grow into Christ-likeness at a rate that is pleasing to you, that is honoring to Christ, and that is indicative of those who have the Holy Spirit to do so. I pray that we would be changed, that we would be those who more honor you and who are more in tune with your will and obedient to you. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.